The rest of you can take your Bibles out and turn them to 1 John. Uh, no, it's 1 John. All right, we are slowly making our way through this remarkable letter of Jesus' best friend, the Apostle John. When this letter was written about six decades after John was a part of the uh, inner circle of uh, the disciples of Jesus, you know, three men were allowed to see and hear more than the other disciples were, and he was one of those. And that, of course, was before the amazing events of A.D. 33 when Jesus was arrested in Jerusalem by order of the high priest, rushed through six legal proceedings, legal and illegal, I should say, <laughs> found guilty of blasphemy and then handed over to Rome uh, on a trumped-up charge that wasn't related to that at all, and then cruelly put to death on that same day on Passover. The chief priests had no idea that he was truly the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They didn't know that. Three days later, he arose from the grave, having conquered death by his sinless life, and by that act, he made reconciliation possible between man, sinful man, and a holy God. And he sent his followers to proclaim the salvation that he achieved on the cross. And John heard those words personally. In fact, at the end of Luke's gospel, it's put like this. Jesus said, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then he spent 40 days with John and the other disciples, and then he ascended to his heavenly throne where he rules over his people, the church, gathering millions into his fold and granting them eternal life. Jesus said he would return in glory to reclaim God's creation for God's purposes. So he was the long-expected Messiah. And John knew him. John knew him as the best of men, and he knew him as the Son of God, risen to reign. So now, this letter, decades later, probably six decades later, something like that, John writes to some of the churches that he oversaw and loved dearly that were in Asia Minor, which had suffered this crisis, and we've talked about it multiple times, but some had left the church for a new faith, a kind of quasi-Christian cult, denying all the great doctrines of the faith, all the teaching of the apostles, and buying into that cult meant that Jesus was lost to you. So, of course, Jesus will always keep his own but the question arises, and this was the question they were asking, was who, who are his own? How do you tell? These people were in our church. They were part of us. They left. How do, how do you know who's real? What's a true Christ follower? What's a sign or the marks of a true follower of Jesus? They've been part of the church. They've, they've, they've gone for an unrecognizable Jesus and a gospel that doesn't save anyone. In fact, they say Jesus is not a savior from sin. How could they turn to that? How could they go down that path? So we saw in chapter 2 that John offers three distinguishing marks of a Christian. Three tests, if you will. You don't want to give tests to people like that. But they, 
these realities that should be true in every Christian life can kind of help separate out the true from the false. It helps us distinguish. Now, we can't read hearts, so we're, we can be pretty poor at that. But these three things should be there if somebody's a true Christian. That's what he's saying. So the first test you'll remember we talked about was the obedience test. A true Christian wants to be obedient to God. Chapter 2, verse 3 actually said, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, right? And then verse 6 of chapter 2, he said, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner in which he walked, following Jesus. Just simple, plain truth. A, a true Christian desires to obey God. The second test we call the love test. It's in chapter 2 verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And the third test was a doctrinal test. There are certain core truths regarding Jesus and salvation that a true Christian will always affirm in the strongest way. They'll say, that is the truth. Verse 22 of chapter 2, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And if you remember that Gnostic cult people were going off to, they did deny that Jesus was the Christ. They said the Christ is a totally different entity and he just latched on to this guy Jesus and it was just a weird, bizarre religion they invented. So John's going, going to go through these same categories again, just using a little bit different language. Obedience, love, and sound doctrine. So last week we noted that we were in 1 John 2.28 and we said that that marked a transition to another part of the, gospel, uh, of the letter there that he's writing um, with new ideas and new vocabulary. And he brought up one of the things he brought up that he hadn't mentioned before was the second coming of Christ. That was one of the things we talked about in verse 28. And the response of men when he comes to how they're going to react to him. That's what he was talking about. And then moving ahead to 229, John starts a whole section on the subject of righteousness. Why that? Because he's starting to go through the three tests again. Now he didn't use righteousness so much as a word the first time around. Of course, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he said God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He did say that. God is righteous. We're not always righteous, are we? Anybody here always righteous? Good. <laughs> I'd hate to have to take you out later. <laughs> chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord is called Jesus Christ the righteous, so he's righteous, Christ is righteous. And although John emphasized the obedience of Christians in chapter 2, he didn't use the word righteous, but now he's going to use it, starting in verse 29. So chapter 2, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So who's truly a born-again Christian? A person that practices righteousness. It's another way of just applying the moral test and he's using a different word. He's developed this word um, talking about God but now he's applying it to, to those who are followers of God, who are born of God. So do you know who's born of him? The one who practices righteousness. He is righteous 
And if we are his children, born of him spiritually, there will be a, a family resemblance, I guess you could say. We're going to follow in his wake. We're going to be like him. So righteousness actually, because of this new birth, it becomes a component of our nature. It wasn't before, but it is now. Before Christ, you didn't have a righteous nature. Now you do have one because you're born of him. So, what is righteousness? I think the easiest way to define it is being and doing good or what's right in the eyes of God. That's the simplest definition I can think of. Being and doing what's right in the eyes of God. Righteousness is goodness according to God. His definition. His nature. His reality. Right heart. Right priorities. Right actions. That's what we're talking about. It would include character. It would include attitudes. It would include conduct and obedience to God's commands. All of those things. So we orient our whole lives, a righteous person does, around the Lord's desires for us. And if we are God's children, then we should show forth his righteousness in us. In Romans chapter 6, verse 13, Paul says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Is your body an instrument of righteousness to God? Because that's what it should be. In Romans 14, 17, Paul actually defines belonging to the kingdom of God. He says, you can summarize the kingdom of God with these words, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And righteousness is first on that little list there. Nothing can be better than the life he's describing there. That's the Christian life. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So now I think we have to talk about this one word in um, Verse 28 here, 1 John 2, 28, or 29. I think we need to talk about it because it's translated in interesting ways and different ways in different Bibles, and it um, really helps us understand what he's not saying and what he is saying. So my Bible, I have a New American Standard 1995 edition. So, and it uses the word, it uses the word practices, okay? So um, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now some translations just use the word does, like everyone who does righteousness is born of him. And the, the little Greek word, it's, it's poion, don't worry about that, but it's, it, it's kind of an elastic word, it's a little word that means a lot of things. It's got a, a kind of a broad general use and it means to make or to do or to act or any of those kinds of things. So it's a word for, it's a word for activity. Is that's probably the best way to describe it. True Christians actively do righteousness. They're all about righteousness. They make their faith work out in their life. And that comes from this new birth, being born of him. What, what the technical word for that in theology is regeneration. This new, new birth, that's what that means. Regeneration is a child of God. So we're supposed to be like dad because we're born of him. Or as Paul says it in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children. If he's our father, we're going to imitate 
him. Beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. That's what he wants from us. Like all good dads. You know, our heavenly father expects us to be like him, to act like him. Now, this is not in the earthly sense, like an earthly dad might be all about his son taking over his business, right? Or an earthly dad was a big success in sports and college, and he wants his son to be a collegiate athlete just like he was like that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about righteousness. We're not talking about earthly fathers. We're talking about God the Father who is perfect in all things. That means he's good and right and true. So that's what he wants us to follow with him. It is consistent with everything we mean about being good. When we talk about good, real good, to follow our creator is, is what that means, to be like him. So this isn't just dad, it's the maker of all things and everything depends on him for its very existence. He defines what right and good are, what they look like and we're just choosing to follow that because we've been born of him. You notice when you became a Christian your values changed rather dramatically? It's like kind of flipped on its head sometimes. Some of us it was very dramatic. Others, for others of us it was just very defining like, oh, yeah, I really don't do that right. I'm not right here in this area of my life. And I've got to tame this part of me. And, uh, and that's where I'm supposed to be going. And that's what I should be doing. You've got to grow into those kind of things, right? God defines right and wrong. For example, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm just going to pull the hardest one of all to obey, okay? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And we'd all go, yeah, that's right. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There it is, the super ethic. I was listening to an atheist homosexual the other day in a, in a, in a no, no, this is great. He's a very nice man, a very articulate and intelligent man. And he was talking about, he's really attracted by Christianity. He's not there. He's an atheist. He says he's an atheist. But he said, Jesus gave the world this idea of love your enemies. And he said, that's beyond us. And he's really drawn to that. He said, that changed civilization. And nothing has impacted the world more than the Sermon on the Mount. Because even unbelievers see that as a noble thing. Impossible, but noble. And we try to act that way. It's a very amazing thing. So there's this principle at work in us that makes this possible. It's possible for us to love our enemies because we're God's children. Because we're born of him. And as we grow in righteousness and evaluate ourselves and confess our own sins and pursue him, we can love those that are the most difficult and the most opposed to us. We are born of him. Now, in 1 John chapter 3, and boy, this is one of those places. There's certain places in the Bible where you just go, why did you divide the chapter right there? <laughs> now, you know the chapter divisions aren't scriptural. I mean, that's not God, right? Some humans did that in the Middle Ages. And usually it's pretty helpful, you know, it just kind of breaks things up a little bit. But sometimes it really interferes with the flow. 
and you think like this is a whole new thing going on when it's really the same thing going on. You don't see what I'm saying about that? I'm using really technical language, the thing and the thing. <laughs> but um, anyway, they're not inspired, so sometimes it's best to ignore the chapter divisions, right? But the idea of being born of him in verse 29 of chapter 2 flows right into this beautiful thought on the believer's status as a child of God. The new birth makes John think about God's incredible love and it, it just flows right into it. So there shouldn't be a division there. At least don't, put, don't let one be there in your mind. Verse 1, chapter 3, 1 John. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And thus we are. Such we are. Such we are. So your mind should often come back to 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 and think about that. This love of God that makes us truly his children. Sometimes, you know, we get pretty overwhelmed with stuff and life and all the struggles of life and we forget this amazing place that God has raised us up to this remind yourself I a rebel became a child of God by God's love that's what you want to remember all the time and it was a gift you didn't earn it it's all a gift of grace so the words how great a love in the New American Standard Bible is an effort to capture the unique glory of God's love and you know um, here again we're talking about translations but John actually doesn't use the word great there Paul uses great mega mega love uh, about God's love um, the King James Version translates it this way behold what manner of love and the ESV says what kind of love and those are good translations too because that word that word is sort of trying to get you to go wow <laughs> Uh, that's what it's doing. So great is an, an all right translation as well. It's just not, it's not exactly the word. It's a hard thing to translate. Maybe wondrous love. There's hymns that talk about wondrous love. And maybe it's that sort of idea. Because it's supposed, the word's really about your response to how, how neat this is. How astonishing it is. So astonishing love maybe would capture the meaning best. But that's the word used here. Um, is used to convey this sense of wonder. But great will do. Great is fine. I'm, I'm, it, how great a love. But John is, John, John is saying, take a good look at God's love. That's the love that he bestowed on us. That we should be called the children of God. That's how fantastic, astonishing, wonderful that love is. What kind of love is that? Think about that. Sinful as we were, as corrupt as we were, so easily we broke his commandments. So carelessly we ignored God and pursued our own desires instead. Effortlessly we made idols out of anything that just happened to hit our fancy. Without any moral struggle we did wrong and we were pretty fine with it. We were hell bound. And Jesus came to rescue us. He came to rescue us. He said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, that's me. <laughs> He's talking about me there. He was so serious about it that he literally carried the weight of all of our sins on himself on the cross. 
He died for us, then called us and drew us and saved us with eternal life that we find in Him. How could you know that and not pursue righteousness? How could you believe that and not desire to be righteous? It's kind of impossible. And that's why it's a test of authenticity. Consider our Heavenly Father who sent His only begotten Son into this world. You know, Jesus told the disciples, your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Luke chapter 12. Matthew 6, 8. Your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. He knows. A child of God does not need to get God's attention. Did you know that? When you pray, you're not getting his attention. He's just been waiting for you to talk to him. <laughs> He's been there the whole time. If you're his child, his compassionate eye is on you all the time. All the time. You don't have to awaken it. If you're his child, you belong to him. Even his discipline is perfect. It's perfect fatherly discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness which is another good word for righteousness the writer that Hebrews goes on he says all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields you might know that verse the peaceful fruit of righteousness if you're trained by God's discipline it yields brings forth out of you the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's that righteousness word. Keep showing up. Keep showing up. That's what our Father is after for us. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know, we can't separate being God's child from seeking to follow Him fully. You can't separate those things. We have a perfect God who to us is a perfect Father. And it's this relationship that the world literally just can't understand. Have you ever heard people say, uh, you know, Christians are superstitious. They're fearful. They just live in fear of this God striking them down. I hear unbelievers say this all the time. You're living under this oppression of all these rules and you're terrified to break them because God is going to strike you if you do these sins. You're all afraid you Christians live in fear all the time. And I hear them say that. I go, what? <laughs> we do? That's why that last sentence of verse 1 of chapter 3 is there. For this reason the world does not know us. Because it did not know him. They don't know us. They don't understand being God's child. Because they see God as a moral ogre. That's what they think he is. Now maybe some Christians give them that impression. I don't know. But mainly I think John is right on here. The world doesn't understand God. So it doesn't understand us. Maybe down inside they fear God because they are unreconciled to Him. Maybe. Maybe. But I do know I don't live in terror of every misstep that I make or every sin that I commit because I know what 1 John chapter 1 says that if I confess my sins, He is faithful and just to forgive, forgive them and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I know that that's true. Why does He do that? Because He's made me His son. And He has a Father's love for me. And it's a perfect love. He's not like a bad dad. He's a perfect dad. 
I fight my own sins because I want to honor the God that loves me so much that he doesn't take my sins into account. That's why I want to be righteous. I'm not quaking all the time. Far from it. I want to honor God. And I want him to be honored with my life. So the world sees God as this strict moralist and we see him as this perfect father. He made us his children. And if you do know him, then you must understand that in Christ, you didn't go from being a rebel to a barely tolerated slave of the kingdom. You know what I mean? God doesn't say, all right, I won't destroy you. You can live under my thumb, but beware. I can cast you out at a moment's thought. That's not it. That's not who God is. That's not our God. We may well deserve to be treated like that. And I think it's healthy if you realize you do deserve that. But that's not him. He calls us beloved children. Beloved children. So Jesus wants you to think of God as your father. Now he is our master. He is our sovereign Lord. He is the creator of all things. Everything belongs to him. And he has creator's rights over everything. And just on that basis, we owe him all honor and devotion. That's absolutely true. But through Christ, he is our father. And we love him. And he loves us. We're getting there. It'll take a few years. but No, it won't take years. But in, in some weeks or months, we'll be in chapter 4, verse 10, where, where it says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. His son took care of our sins. So his love is what's boundless, and his love is sacrificial. He not only forgives and restores, but he raises us up to these heights beyond we could ever ask or think to be a child of God. In fact, Paul's amazing passage in Romans chapter 8 really ought to put to rest forever the idea that we live in mortal fear of God's judgment. So if anybody ever says that to you, just say, have you ever read Romans chapter 8? And take him to the end of it there, or sort of in the middle of it, and verse 14 where he says, um, all of you are being led by the Spirit of God. For all of you that are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Heirs of God, fellow heirs, fellow heirs of Christ. So as a perfect man that obeyed the law perfectly, Christ inherits everything. And since we are in him, in Christ, we share in that inheritance, not because we deserve it, but because he poured out this incredible blessing on us. So we don't have a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but a spirit of adoption as sons. In other words, we feel that way. Not this terror of God, but we, we, we know that we're adopted into his family and we're his children. That's our position with God. It's a place of honor. It's a place of delight. It's a place of rest. In every way, our position is not that of household slaves, 
but of sons. And that means all of creation, which was made for man and cursed because of our sin, all of that's going to be renewed and the curse is going to be lifted and it will be for us. It'll be for God's children. You know, God doesn't live in the world. He's way beyond all that. He made it. He was around long before the universe was made. It's for us. And it's going to be restored for us. Christ will rule and will rule with him. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the way he puts it. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation follows the glory that awaits us. The curse came from following human sin and the glorious freedom from corruption follows in the wake of human salvation purchased by our Savior. So, wow. <laughs> Far from fearing what we possess as God's children is just glory. It's a staggering wonder. It's almost too hard to believe, but it's God's promise to us. And God always keeps his promises. So this great truth is for us. That, however, should never cause in us an attitude of arrogance or pride or superiority over other people. Because why? We deserved none of it. We didn't earn any of it. It's a gift of grace extended to us. You can't be proud of grace because you are not deserving of it. All of this was purchased for us at the cross. It's a gift, like I said. You cannot strut about like a rooster crowing about your sonship with God. That's not the right way to handle that. It's a gift, completely undeserved. What we can do is magnify the greatness of God in his mercy through Christ to us. We can do that. We can graciously crow about him. What did Paul say? I will boast in the Lord, right? I will boast in the Lord. We can, we can crow about him, but not about us. You know, I'm a, I'm a son of God. You're a wretched sinner. Really a better man than you? No, that's, I'm a son of God. I'm a son of God by, and I didn't deserve it. I, I, was, I was so caught up in myself and in sin and in the world, and I didn't deserve it at all. And, he did this incredible thing for me. He'll do it for you too. Sharing the gospel with people is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. That's what it is. The world doesn't understand. And that's what he says there. But we do understand. Let's go back to verse 29 of chapter 2 real quick and connect it to verse, verse 1 of chapter 3. So verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God and such we are. 
So as we kind of wrap up here, remember those who practice righteousness are born of him. That's why I'm tying those verses together. They're meant to go together. We don't say born of him in a metaphorical sort of way. It's a reality, a spiritual reality. His great love declares us to be children by adoption, but that there's a radical transformation that's going on from within that makes us be his children. The Holy Spirit makes it a reality. We are awakened by the Spirit. We're made alive. That's Paul's language. We're made alive in Christ. We're awakened by him. He draws us to Christ and he opens our eyes to see how wonderful Jesus is and we can't do anything except go. Go to him. Receive him. And as his children, wondrously saved by this grace, we practice, we do, we make righteousness. Then verse 2 of chapter 3, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So notice John is linking the idea of Christ appearing, a theme he started in verse 28 of chapter 2. He's, he's linking that to righteousness. In verse 28 he said, When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And then in verse 2 of chapter 3 he says, When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. There's this ever-increasing, glorious progression happening here. Not only do we stand before him with confidence, like chapter 2 verse 28 says, resting in his completeness and the fullness of salvation, but there will be this blessed and much longed for transformation where our sinful flesh will be gloriously transformed into righteousness. We'll be pure like he is pure. And as his children, that's our final destination. That's where he's bringing us to this, to be like him. And he can make that happen. Did you know that God is really powerful? He can make that happen. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 describes it perfectly. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Wow. God's power. When we see him, that power will be extended to us and we will be changed forever to be fit for heaven, to be like Christ, not as God, but as righteous, pure, Octavius Winslow, an old preacher from the 19th century, described this. He said, described this change. No more elements of evil working like leaven in the soul. No more traces and fetters of corruption. No more evil heart of unbelief, perpetually departing from God. No more desperate depravity. No more sin warring within us. No more temptation assailing from without. All is perfect holiness on that day.
Let that sink in. That's our destiny. Well, I think that's the best place to stop for today. The high point of our salvation. But John has more to say about this. And I want to get into verse 2 and 3 a little bit more. And then we'll pick it up again next week. So let's pray. Our great Lord, you are so full of love. It's a wondrous love. It's an amazing love. It's beyond our comprehension. It's a transforming love. You not only give us the status as children, but you awaken our hearts to love you as our Father. And yes, the world can't understand it, but we do. And may we be faithful to honor that in the way we conduct our lives. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.